what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Voices from the Mausoleum. Uh, in today's podcast episode, we are back with Spooky Saturday Stories. I, uh, as you know, have um, been following along. I had COVID and my coughing and my voice, oh man, it was rough for a while there. I, most of my last episode with Tasha for Horrid Bestie Breakdown, I was like coughing off camera and I was drowning in cough drops. So, um, anyway, we're back. Um, with a new story. Um, this is going to be a story that was submitted to me uh, via Twitter from an indie author. Um, and today's spooky story is from the collection The Beast in the Bedchamber by T.L. Bowden. B-O-D-I-N-E. I hope I uh, pronounced that correctly. I'll put a link to this uh, book as well as um, her information in the, uh, the description for this episode. Um, and it's one of her short stories from that, uh, from the Beast in the Bedchamber called Blackwood. Uh, so let's just jump in. So this is going to be Blackwood from T.L. Bowden. I'm sorry, I don't do this much. He flashes me an apologetic smile, and for a moment I'm transfixed by the whiteness of his teeth and the way they contrast against the darkness of his thick beard. It's okay, Mr. Blackwood, I say. I don't really do this much either. We laugh because it's so ridiculous, and in the laughter, some of the tension melts away. The silence becomes more amicable. Just Blackwood, please. And yes, I suppose you wouldn't. So, do you have any qualifications? Work experience? He glances down at the paper on his desk, the notepad that he's been intermittently scribbling on once I arrived. Since I arrived. The question catches me off guard. Uh, my eyes dart around the room, looking for an escape or inspiration. I don't know which. The painted eyes of a self-portrait bear down on me. He's not smiling in the portrait, so his mouth is hidden behind the soft, dark curls of his mustache and beard. His eyes, though, are the same. Small, dark, intense, and boring down on me. Caught in the double gaze of my host, I feel small and vulnerable. I didn't know I needed experience. I'm just fucking with you, he says. His face splits wide with a smile that bears his two white teeth, but doesn't touch his eyes. Look, here's the thing. I don't get out much. You get to a certain age and realize that life has passed you by. You can't really make friends or find love or any of that bullshit. So you've just got to keep doing the same shit you've been doing and hope it's enough to make the kind of impact you want to make. If you care about any of that crap anyway. How old are you, son? 23, I lie. I look old for my age. He gives me a shrewd look like he's about to call bullshit, but he doesn't. Instead, he says, well, you're too young to understand that then. And I hope you never find yourself needing to. But the truth is, when you're an old, lonely, sad sack like me, you'll do just about anything for a bit of company, even put an ad up on Craigslist. Which brings us, of course, back to our current predicament. I need a roommate and you need a room. I'd say that's qualification enough. I can't figure out if that means I'm accepted and whether I really want to be. He's right about one thing. I do need a room. I've been living in a car for too long and I'm running out of quarters for the public showers at the truck stop. I've got a job, a part-time gig, under the table, but hey, it pays for dinner, but no way to run a place. Not unless I wanted to get one of those rat trap hotels that charges by the week, the place where the homeless guys spend their window washing money for a warm bed a couple nights a month. So, sure, this guy is unreadable and weird, but it's not like I have a lot of other options. My plan B is basically to live in the street until my boss figures me out, and then what happens? I don't say any of this. Instead, I just look back up at Blackwood and wait for him to keep talking. 
I think you'll find my rules amenable. I'm a fairly easygoing guy, and I generally keep to myself, which is, of course, how I ended up in this predicament. You seem like a nice fellow. That's good enough for me, if it's good enough for you. This is officially the strangest interview I'd ever had, and that's counting the one where my current boss showed up 20 minutes late and stinking of Grey Goose. Then again, he usually smells like that, so I guess that wasn't so unusual. Okay. Blackwood stands. He's not a very big man, but he seems to take up a lot of space, regardless. Maybe it's just the huge painting behind him, the one that takes up most of that rear wall. Great. Then come with me and I'll show you around. This house is too big, but I may as well give you a proper tour and get it out of the way. He leads me out into the hall, which leads me into another hall, and every hallway is lined with rooms. The walls are covered in paintings, and these watch us with flat eyes. The ones that have eyes, anyway. Most are of other things, hands, necks, thighs. They capture light and movement, the way muscles ripple under skin or shadows play over flesh. Blackwood was right. The house really is too big for him. It's a sprawling Victorian home, the kind that usually gets renovated into a B&B or gourmet restaurant. A labyrinth of hallway connects an endless series of rooms. He points out necessities as he goes. That's your room, and this one's mine. That's the sitting room over there. Sorry about the television. The cable company won't come out this far, and I don't want to bother with the satellite. Honestly, I don't really watch much television. There's internet, though. Dial up. I know, I know, but it does what you need it to do. I don't mind. As far as I'm concerned, the house's isolation is one of its greatest strengths. The further I am from everyone else, the less likely it is that somebody I don't want to see will come looking for me. I don't expect you to clean more than whatever messes you make yourself, he says. Otherwise, I would have run an ad for a mate instead. I'm glad, because everywhere I look, I see dust or spider webs. It seems pretty clear that a lot of these side rooms haven't been touched in ages. They're mostly filled with boxes, and many of them hold art, paintings, sculptures, drawings, and ink or charcoal. The statues are the most striking. They're life-size, or slightly larger than life-size, and made of some sort of coppery-brown marbled surface. It doesn't look like stone, but I can't figure it out. Acid-etched concrete, he says with a smile. Just as beautiful as marble, but cheaper and easier to work with. More fluid, malleable, and rough. It hides all sorts of imperfections. The figures are posed in ways that conjure images of life. They occupy furniture in the vacant rooms, seated in chairs, lying in beds, standing huddled as if in conversation. They have no features, and their smooth, blank faces give no emotion. Unlike everything else in most of these rooms, they are clean and free of dust. They keep me company, Blackwood says. From his smile, I can't tell whether he's serious. The tour continues. Somehow, the hall circles back around, and we find ourselves near the office where we started. The rest of the lived-in rooms are huddled closely together, close to the bedrooms. The kitchen is messy and lived in, obviously the place where Blackwood spends most of his time. There's a small table with two chairs sitting in the corner of the room. Attached to the kitchen is a dining room. It's dark and occupied only by a large table and several concrete statues. They sit around the table as if enjoying a silent meal. And this is my studio, he says, pointing to the last door on the tour. The door is closed and I notice that the knob has a keyhole, unlike most of the other rooms. Blackwood digs around his pockets. Here's your spare key, he says, drawing it out and handing it to me. It's a master key. I key all my locks the same to spare me some time and trouble. So this will let you go anywhere you want to go. The front door, back door, garage, shed, whatever. I do ask that you stay away from my studio, though. It's full of sharp tools and harsh chemicals and expensive artwork. It's easy to get hurt or break something. No problem, I say. Your house, your rules. Our house now, he says, with another of those face-splitting smiles. 
in a manner of speaking. Blackwood spends most of the following weeks preparing for an art exhibit. I rarely see him. He sleeps in later than I do, and when I come home from work, he's usually in his studio. Sometimes I can hear the sound of hammering or cutting or other odd noises that I can't really place. Most of the time, I head back to my room without thinking too much about it. He doesn't ask me any questions, and that suits me just fine. Mostly, I only see him at mealtimes. He insisted that I help myself to the food in his house, despite my protest that I should pay for my share. You're too thin, he'd say, looking at me with an appraising look, the way someone might look at livestock they were planning to buy. Help yourself. You need it. He's right, of course. I am too thin. I'm bony from too much time on the streets, and when I eat, I wolf down my food as if expecting someone to come and take it from me. Then again, that was something I had to worry about for a long time. Assholes who thought it was funny to steal my lunch at school, or my dad thinking it'd be suitable punishment to padlock all the cabinets in the refrigerator. That might have worked better if he'd ever been home to unlock them. I don't argue with Blackwood. Instead, at mealtimes, I try to make myself useful. I'm not a very good cook. Most of my experience comes from dunking fries in hot oil or flipping greasy patties on a grill. Still, Blackwood seems impressed. He sits across from me and makes small talk. I try not to stare at him, so my eyes wander instead to the empty dining room. The blank faces of the statues stare back. I don't take them with me to shows, he tells me. When I travel, it's only the paintings. These others, they're just for me. I ask him to tell me about his art so I won't need to make conversation on my own. When he talks, I find my eyes always straying back to his mouth, the tangle of his beard, the fullness of his lips. I try to look at his eyes, but they're too hard, too intense, and they chase my gaze south again. So I go back to looking at the statues. After a while, I realize he's stopped talking. I look back at him and see that he's watching me, like I was watching him. His expression is inscrutable. I'll be gone for a few days, he says, after the silence stretches between us. But I'm sure you'll be fine without me. The house is too big when I'm alone. It's obvious why Blackwood asked for a roommate. The first night that he's gone, I lie awake and listen at the house as the house makes odd noises. It creaks and groans. I get up once to venture into the kitchen for a glass of water. When I walk past the studio, I hear what sounds like scratching just inside the door. Mice? I'm not sure. I pause outside to listen, but hear nothing more. After a while, I go ahead into the kitchen, get my water, and head back to bed. I don't get much sleep. I'm exhausted by the time morning comes. I roll out of bed and go through the motions of getting dressed for work. Somehow I know, though, in the pit of my stomach, that something is going to go wrong with it. It's just one of those mornings. I'm not even surprised when I see the flat tire. Considering how far out this place is, how rough the country road is, the flat tire seems inevitable. I don't have a spare. I go back inside to call my boss. He answers, sounding drunk and exasperated, and tells me not to worry about it. He also tells me not to bother coming in again. It takes me a while after I hang up the phone to realize that means I've been fired. Blackwood comes back on the third day. By then, I've worked myself up into a panic. I've got some money, but it won't last long, and I don't know when I'm going to find another job. This one was hard enough to get. I'm worried that Black what Blackwood's going to say as soon as he figures out. So I avoid him when he gets back, and it only lasts so long before I find us both back in the kitchen, staring at each other in an awkward silence over a plate of noodles. I, um, I might have some trouble with rent this next month, I say. He quirks a brow. The rest of the story spills out of me. 
When I'm done, my voice is trembling and I can feel the burn creep up my cheeks and the side of my neck. I stop myself just barely before saying something stupid like, don't make me live on the street again. It doesn't matter, he says, and his hand crosses the table. Stubby fingertips touch the back of my hand, creep up toward my wrist. I don't really care about the money. My heart thuds up into my throat. I struggle to talk around it. I, I owe you something. I'll make it up to you. I'm good for it. I'm sure you are, he says. His fingers don't stray from my hand. Tell you what, I could use a new model. If you really want to make it up to me, pose for me. A model? I choke out. I can't imagine modeling for anything. I'm not exactly handsome. I have the kind of vague features that people quickly forget. Camouflage that's always kept me safe in a crowd. I've cultivated that kind of nondescriptness over the years. Defense against being the faggot in the schoolyard or the kid with the asshole dad. I don't know that I'd be very good at it. You don't need to do much, he says, locking intense eyes upon me. Any artist can represent a beautiful person beautifully. The art comes from drawing the extraordinary from the mundane. His fingers crawl around the inside of my wrist, brush the underside of my hand, and somehow I don't mind that he just called me mundane. He keeps the room warm for me, but I still don't want to take off my clothes. I hold my chest protectively, as if my hands can keep the pounding of my heart at bay. We're not in his studio. Instead, he has me pose in his office. The light is better, he tells me. Softer, kinder, and it's warmer in here. I quail under the gaze of the self-portrait on the wall. I might not mind shedding my clothes for Blackwood alone, but I can't stand the penetrating gaze from above. You're safe, he says. Take it slow. Just your shirt, if that makes you more comfortable. Stripping off my shirt shouldn't make me feel so uneasy. Other guys do it all the time, at home, at the gym. I've never been that guy, though. I try to remember the last time I was shirtless in front of someone. I can't recall. Reluctantly, I pull my shirt over my head, revealing a pale, bare torso crossed by a dozen scars, remnants of the years of cutting and burning myself. Black would gasp audibly when he sees me. Beautiful, he says tracing the puckered white lines of flesh with his eyes. I know he means it. He sketches me for a long time. Occasionally, he asks me to move to capture the light. We take frequent breaks. At first, I'm eager to put on my shirt again, but after a while, I leave it off. I like the way he looks at me, appreciative and hungry. I model for him every day that week. He tells me stories, most of the time, to keep me calm and distracted. Sometimes he tells me about the galleries that have shown his art, the way he handles all the details from afar. Once, he says, he found a hotel room directly across the street from the gallery and spent the day watching the crowds through the windows with binoculars. Mostly, though, he just talks about art, and most of the words blur together as I see him looking at me. The thing about art, he tells me, is it's a way to make sense of life. You can take things in this world and alter them, twist and cut and shape the, them to be the way you want. With art, you become a god. You recreate the universe in your own image. Is that what you're doing to me, I ask? Building me in your image? He smiles, a shy twitch of his whiskers, and he goes back to work. Would you like that? Yes, I say breathlessly. Not sure anymore what I'm agreeing to. The next session, I take off the rest of my clothes. Like my body, my legs are covered in scars down to my knees, 
Blackwood draws for a while, then rises to slowly circle me. I want to memorize every line, he says, touching my chest with a dry, stubby fingertip. I freeze beneath his touch. I can nearly feel the heat radiating off my skin. When I close my eyes, I want to remember them. At night, before I sleep, sometimes they're all I can think of. I'm sorry, I say, because I can't think of anything else. He laughs and moves his hand to stroke the scarred flesh of my thigh. The scar curves inward, and he follows the contour with his hand. You're a beautiful model, he says, his hand between my legs. I feel them trembling with anticipation. Somehow, we end up on the floor together. His hands on my body, my mouth against his skin. I feel his weight against me, on top of me, and before I can warn him that I'm a virgin, I'm not anymore. It hurts. The pain is exquisite, like cutting, and I feel hot and cold all over. I come too soon and apologize too much. He just laughs. I start sleeping in Blackwood's bed. Some days he's affectionate and loving. He stays in bed with me late in the day, or we spend time wandering the lonely grounds around his home, hands entwined. He shows me the books and articles that have been written about him, praising him as the most genius artist of the 21st century. Nobody knows who he is or even what he looks like, and his anonymity is at the very core of his fame. I tell him I've never heard of him before I got to this house. We have a good laugh about that. Other days, he spends locked away in his studio for long hours. Once or twice, he's up so late working that I awaken to an empty bed, and it feels more lonesome than anything has ever felt before. I feel something for him, but I don't know if it's love. How could I? When have I ever felt love for anything, even myself? I still model for him. He won't show me the drawings. It's not the only secret he keeps. Before, as roommates, the closed doors and evasive answers hardly mattered to me. Now all of it feels unbearable. He had another exhibition, he tells me. This one will be longer than the last. It's in another state. I want to come along, but he says it's a bad idea. I'd be bored, he tells me. And besides, the media would go crazy if they found out I was with him. The famous Blackwood is so mysterious and reporters are hungry for a scandal. They'd try to figure out all about me as a way to get close to him. That's enough to stop me from asking again. Besides, as he packs the van, I realize there's some meager benefit to an empty house. I wait for him to leave and spend some time wandering the halls. I want to kill some time in case he comes back. He's bad about forgetting things when he leaves the house, maybe because he's so used to being home with everything he needs. Once I'm certain that he's gone for good, I make my way for his studio. I linger outside the door, listening for any odd sounds. I wait, but hear nothing. No scuffling, no scratching. Still, I cannot avoid the curiosity that rises up in me. What is he doing there, in there, all alone for so many hours? I've helped him load up his truck for two exhibits now, and none of the artwork came from inside. It's a master key, his words echo in my mind, a memory that bubbles to the surface. I don't know why, but the thought is suddenly exhilarating. My heart begins to pound and my fingertips tingle. I head back to my room to retrieve the master key. I catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror and I'm surprised by what I see. I'm heavier than I was, more solid. I look older too. And some of my softness has been sculpted into hard angles. I've got a full beard now. So much like his. 
rebuilding the world in your own image. I take the key and head down to the studio. I spend a breathless moment outside, certain that the key won't fit. And then the lock clicks and I step inside. Several odors assault my nose at once. The smell of decay, embalming fluid, acid, concrete. It takes my eyes a minute to adjust to the gloom of the darkened room. Once they do, my eyes are drawn to a wall of photographs, each pinned haphazardly, some layered one over the others. They don't make any sense. I stare at them for a long time, too confused to be afraid. They look like a series of progress photos. I lean in close to get a clearer look at one. It shows a cadaver, a guy about my age, maybe a little younger, propped up unnaturally on a podium. His eyes are shut and his skin is the deathly pale of a corpse, but his arms and legs have been posed. His entire body is covered in a mesh of wire. The wire cage holds the body upright, keeps it in the right pose. It takes me a while, but I recognize the pose. It's the same as one of the faceless statues in the dining room. My eyes flick from one photo to the next, confirming, and every pose is familiar. Boys, all of them, each one wrapped in wire and posed like a doll. My heart catches in my throat. I want to leave. My body screams at me to run, but I can't tear my eyes away from the photos. Above his workbench, the thing that makes my blood run cold, the drawings of me. Sketches from every angle, every kind of light, my naked form, prostrate on the page. Drawings that I remember posing for, and some I don't. Sketches of me sleeping, or loose sketches drawn from memory. On every drawing, laid over with grids and schemes, are measurements and calculations. How much wire to buy, how much cement to pour. A scream catches in my throat and I back away slowly, as if afraid of waking something in the studio. I stumble back into the hall and lock the door. The room is silent and still. The house is empty. I have to know, I murmur to myself. Hearing it out loud makes it seem less insane. It's not, I'm not sure what I saw inside. Maybe it's not what it looks like. Maybe there's another explanation. Thoughts racing. I go over my options. I have no car. There's a phone, but who would I call? What could I say? I know nobody. I can't imagine calling the police. Hello, my gay lover is a famous artist and I think he's killing boys. I can't make that kind of accusation, not without knowing for sure. Maybe they're fake. Special effects photos? It's not that unlikely. Actors with makeup or digital manipulations that were put together in Photoshop. Maybe he downloaded them from the internet. Maybe they weren't really the same poses as the statues in the house. There are only so many ways to pose a statue. It could all be coincidence. And the measurements? I push the thought away. It doesn't make any sense. Blackwood is an artist, the most famous artist in the region, maybe the whole country. A celebrated genius of modern art. I've seen all the books about him in the study. How likely is it that he's a killer? There has to be another explanation that makes sense. I just have to make sure. Before I do anything hasty, I have to make sure. There's no need for silence in an empty house, but I creep away from the studio anyway. Slowly, deliberately, I make my way into the dining room, seeking out the statue from the photograph. It's there, just slightly larger than life-size, features smooth and blank. I touch it, him, 
and the cement of his arm is smooth but porous under my touch. I wrap my knuckles against it, but all I hear is the dull thud of concrete, too thick and strong to echo, no matter what it may be hiding. How can I know? How can I check? I look around for a solution. It's too heavy to topple, and even if I could, there's no guarantees it would break when it collided with the floor. More likely, I had only damaged hardwood floor to show for my troubles. Swallowing back my fear, I make my way outside to look for a solution. The tool shed is well equipped. For the groundskeeper, I suppose, back when this place had a groundskeeper, or maybe for art projects, I search for several moments for a suitable tool before my eyes rest on what I really need, a sledgehammer. My hands grip the shaft, and for one clear moment, I'm ready to abandon this whole foolish quest, just leave it alone and go back to bed. But I can't do that. I need to know. I make my way back into the dining room, dragging the heavy sledge behind me. It scrapes the ground with a dull rasp. The pounding of my pulse in my ears is deafening. Maybe that's why I don't hear the car drive up or the front door open. Everything happens so fast. It blurs together and none of it makes sense. I raise my sledge in both hands over my head, ready to smash open the statue that may double as a tomb, ready to prove for sure whether I've walked into a trap. From the doorway, Blackwood yells, No! He rushes toward me. I catch a glint in his eye, fear and fury and aggression, the look a dog gets before it bites. He runs for me, and I turn toward him, and I don't know what I'm doing. The sledgehammer falls. Maybe I dropped it. I can't remember. It falls through the air and collides with a wet thump. The sound of a rotten pumpkin smashed against the curb. Blackwood crumples. He doesn't die immediately. His eyes stare up at me, huge and white, in the misshapen bloody mask of his face. They're wide with shock. He starts to say something, but the word is a wet gurgle that dies in his throat. All he can do is blow bubbles of blood from lips in a mouth whose teeth have been smashed in. The bubble pops, and he's gone. I sit on the dining room floor for a long time. I feel numb inside, too numb to move or to be afraid. The burning need to know the secret of the statues is gone. I realize I don't want to know. I don't know how long I sit there, my insides quaking, but it's as if time has ceased to make sense. Finally, I struggle to my feet and grab Blackwood's ankles. I have to do something with the body, I think. Then realize I know exactly what to do. I drag his body down the hall, trailing a bright smear of blood. I pull it into the studio. Making the statue isn't so hard. The instructions are simple to follow. I use the measurements from the sketches he'd done of me. They get me close enough. Making the statue isn't easy, but the effort calms me. By the time I walk away to allow the concrete to dry, my insides have stilled. I go into the kitchen, taking care not to look into the dining room. Methodically, I go through the motions of making a sandwich. I don't get out much. The voice in my head is so sudden that I jump as if hearing it aloud. Even when I have an exhibit, I stay in a hotel. I prefer to deal with everyone over the phone. I can't remember the last person I met face to face. 
Nobody even knows his real name, I realize. Something twists in my gut, but it's not fear. Nobody will ever notice the difference. That was Blackwood by T.L. Bowden. I think we're only at like 30 minutes. I wasn't prepared with another one, but I do have another one. Let me, um, let me fumble for a second and see if I can find one. Just a short one. Oh, here's two I could do really quick. Not really quick. I'm not rushing, but you know what I'm saying. Okay. So this was another submission from Jeff C. Carter. Um, the first one I'm going to read, he sent me two. The first one I'm going to read is a story from a collection, We Bleed Red and Green, 12 Chilling Tales for Christmas. Um, and just like with T.L. Bowden, I will link um, Jeff's socials and the link to um, his stories as well. So his first one is called Breath Like White Smoke. Okay. So Breath Like White Smoke by Jeff C. The world flickered past in a bone-white blur. The snow outside was so thick it bleached away the rocks and trees. Leonard lay his head against the passenger side door, numb to the ache of his skin on the frosted glass. Leo, you awake? I'm getting paid by the hour, you know. Teddy smacked his gum and smiled, enjoying his own joke. He had been assigned to Leonard for this unconventional breakthrough therapy. Anything look familiar? I don't even know why I'm here. Hey, did you taper off the Seroquel? I did. Teddy pushed up his large oval glasses and checked his mirrors. Have you been self-medicating, Leo? Leonard peeled his forehead off the window and shot him a look. Teddy calmly chewed his gum. He had a plain face, a close cropped mustache and a receding buzz cut. Everything about him was average except for those thick black lenses. Leonard felt like an ant caught under a magnifying glass whenever they focused on him. I'm not taking drugs. I just don't recognize any of this. This is a place you've been avoiding. Leonard stared through the stubborn blotches of ice on the windshield. The tree line barely kept the blank ground from bleeding into the empty sky. He had a dim memory of those pines being green. Now they looked like faded Xerox copies. He turned on the radio. Teddy thumped it off. If you don't like the quiet, tell me a story. Leonard sighed, fogging his window. About what? How did you two first meet? His hands trembled. He shoved them into his armpits for warmth. Why don't you ask the police? I can also give you the number of a dozen private investigators. They got paid by the hour, too. You miss her. I miss my kids. She had no right to take them from me. No amount of drugs or therapy is going to make me forget that. Of course you miss them. That's completely natural. And you're angry. That's normal, too. I want to see this from your perspective. Give me the details. Go as far back as you can remember. Leo wiped the window and perched his chin on his palm. It was senior year of college. I'd just come back for winter break. It was going to be the last Christmas in the house I grew up in because my parents were downsizing. It was depressing. One of those wet gray winters without any snow. 
Then, two days before Christmas, there was a shift in the air. Not a cold snap exactly, but a weird charge, like in the summer, before the heat breaks with a storm. The sky just opened up. Everyone was snowed in. Kids were sledding in the streets. It was glorious. But we didn't have a tree yet. So my dad and I grabbed a saw and hiked into the woods. It was idiotic, but we were caught up in the Christmas spirit, so off we went, wading through the hip-deep snow. Dad was struggling, but he wouldn't take a break. He really wanted our last Christmas there to be special. I guess I did, too. We got a tree we liked. He fell down, and that was that. Heart attack. Teddy tilted his head. Did he have heart problems? He was on some medication, nothing major. Would you say it was a surprise? Leonard's head snapped to the side. Do you think I forced him out there knowing he was sick? I think it can be hard for a child to imagine a day when their parents are gone. Leonard dropped his chin back into his hand and stared out the window. I guess. What happened next? CPR didn't work. I tried carrying him. That was impossible, so I dragged him. He kept getting caught on branches. I was drenched with sweat. The light was fading fast. The wind chill was headed below zero. My mind kept drifting. I couldn't remember where I was going. At one point, I realized that I would left him behind. I followed my trail back, laid down next to him, and went to sleep. When I woke up, Yuki was leaning over me. Her long black hair hung down and shut out the freezing wind. Her lips were moving, asking me something. They were so red, like holly berries in front of a pale moon. I made her a promise, and she saved my life. It's a hell of a way to meet. What was the promise? I honestly can't say can't? I was out of it. She made me promise to stay with her, not to quit, stuff like that. Teddy slowed and turned off the main road. The forest thinned, filtering faint rays through its blue-gray branches. Leonard held his hands over the car vent and rubbed them together in the dry air. I never did finish school. Yuki had Frank Jr. on the way, so I had to find a job. Then a year later, Wren was born. I never felt trapped, though. Yuki and I were in love. I swear, she stayed as flawless as the day I met her. Memories of Yuki blended with the frozen landscape, forest shadows in her hair, crisp pine wood smoke and her natural perfume, a frozen stream in the slender curves of her body, the swoop of a cardinal and her fleeting smile. More than anything, though, it was the silence. Sometimes she would stay quiet for days. The night they'd met, she demanded a promise, not a word of this to anyone ever. Not one word. Teddy drummed his fingers on the steering wheel. Trauma binds people together, but it's not a great foundation for a relationship. Frankly, I'm amazed that it lasted so long. What happened next? The snow had melted from the blacktop, and now the route was clear. A frozen lake glimmered through the trees ahead. My mom died. Ah, sorry to hear it. It wasn't anything sudden. We'd, always, we'd already moved in to take care of her. My mother and Yuki never got along. It wasn't a big deal. My mother talked constantly. Yuki and the kids didn't. But that didn't mean that I spent most of my time with my mom. When she started to go downhill, that was when the question started. She wanted to know what had really happened with my dad. You never told her? I told her the basics, and that was bad enough. I didn't want to burden her with the details or explain how she'd almost lost me too. But this time, she wouldn't let it go. She made me tell her over and over, always digging for more details. Something about it haunted her. I thought she felt guilty for not stopping us, or maybe maybe she needed to know what death was like. So, one night, I told her everything. And the more I said, the more I remembered. There were some things even I didn't know until I finally said them out loud. Leonard unzipped his jacket and rubbed the sweat from the back of his neck. 
In the morning, Yuki and the kids were gone. Teddy glanced over. Then what happened? Nothing, according to the police, Leonard tugged at his seatbelt. There was no letter, no divorce papers, no visitation rights. He threw up his hands. Teddy, she won't even let me talk to my kids. Teddy stopped the car. Leonard squinted at, out at a brown sign. They were stopped at the entrance of a state park. The campgrounds were closed for winter. Passing snowplows had barricaded the muddy road with a compacted mound of ice and snow. What are we doing here? Do you think she's stowing away in one of these cabins? Teddy took off his glasses. I brought you here to jog your memory. Your wife came here with the kids. What? When the hell was this? Teddy popped the trunk. Come on, help me clear the road. He climbed down, grabbed a pair of shovels from the trunk. We just need to get the front wheels over. He handed one to Leonard and then started to chip at the top of the snowbank. Leonard stared down the dark dirt path. Why would she come here? He climbed over the mound, dragging his shovel behind him. Teddy clambered after him. Slow down, man. Relax. The ground was scarred with old tire tracks that disappeared beneath the flaking gray lip of the lake. A scrap of yellow police tape fluttered from a tree. What the hell happened here? Teddy ran ahead of him, sliding in the half-frozen mud. Leonard, I need you to breathe. Can you do that with me? He spat out his gum and took a deep, exaggerated breath, nice and slow. Leonard gripped the wooden handle of the shovel. She was here with my kids and the police were here? What happened, Teddy? Where did she take my kids? Teddy scratched his mustache. I was hoping you'd remember on the drive over. I wanted you to dig through the snowbank to give you a chance to work through these feelings. You've been living in a total denial since it happened. Leonard stared past Teddy at the frozen lake. Dark clouds swelled in its reflection. Fog gathered around its edges. Soon, the moonless dark would return. Teddy snapped his fingers. Stay with me, Leonard. You're so close. I know this is painful, but if you quit now, your mind will never accept reality. You need to process what happened here. Leonard's eyes roamed up and down the tire tracks from the highway to the water's edge, sinking as they went down, down, below the surface of the lake, never to return. When he looked back up at the lake, the blood drained from his face. Oh, God. Teddy let out a sigh. It's okay. Breathe. Yuki stood behind him. Her shroud of black hair hung over her skin as pale as moonlit frost. She stood barefoot on the frozen lake. The children were there, too, trapped underneath, tiny fists pounding silently against the ice. Teddy held out his arms. This is grief, Leonard. You can get through this, but you have to face facts. You have to talk about what really happened. Yuki lifted a pale finger to her crimson lips. Not one word. Leonard nodded and brought down the shovel. So our second story, let's see. <clears throat> Tooth and Bone is a short dental horror story from my book, Between the Teeth. Okay. Tooth and Bone by Jeff C. Carter. The stranger pounced into the dentist chair. That was the first sign something wasn't right. Dr. Tom was used to people rushing into the night clinic in need of treatment. He was used to people whining through cracked teeth and wailing over exposed nerves, but no matter how badly they wanted relief, they all hesitated before climbing into the chair. The stranger reclined and grew perfectly still. Dr. Tom didn't think this was a relaxed stillness. It felt like the tension in a coiled spring. 
What seems to be the problem? said Dr. Tom, feigning sincerity. The man in the chair gave no response. Tom's typical client spoke little English, had no insurance, and always paid in cash. Tom gave a genuine smile. Now he could get down to work and avoid the ignorant guesses and sniveling complaints. He was a virtuoso with his hands and tools. Bedside manner was irrelevant. Did a mechanic need to calm down an engine? Did a sculptor first earn the trust of a block of stone? Dr. Tom loved everything about dentistry but the people. The solution, of course, was veterinary dentistry. One day, Tom would go back for that second degree. One day, he would work on an endless variety of mouths and his clients wouldn't even have vocal cords. One day, soon, his student debt and business loans were going to ruin him. The thought was like biting down on a raw nerve. Oof. He focused on the task at hand. Working with immigrants was almost as good as working on animals. Dr. Tom moved the chair into a declined position and switched on the exam light. The halogen splashed off the man's blunt face. His lips, ears, and nose were as faint as an eroded statue. Not only was he bald, but his sloping forehead was bereft of eyebrows and lashes. He suspected the stranger had alopecia. It couldn't be from chemotherapy. The man's neck was as thick and muscular as the pit bulls that prowled the neighborhood. His small jet black eyes were round and nearly lidless. They stared into the light. Had he blinked once since he sat down? So, you from around here? Tom attempted with waning confidence. The man in the chair opened his mouth wide, then wider, and then wider still. Tom gasped. He had seen Jaws dislocate before opening this far. The man sat motionless, eyes and mouth open. A dim panic fluttered through the dentist, but the glistening panorama of teeth beckoned him closer. He snapped on a pair of latex gloves. Okay, let's start the examination. I'm going to probe your teeth and gums. Let me know if anything hurts. With a pen in his left hand and a probe in his right, Tom leaned over the gaping mouth. He had taught himself how to probe and take notation at the same time, saving him the hassle and expense of a clumsy hygienist. With the receptionist gone for the day, they were alone in the building. He realized he was holding his breath. He forced himself to relax. A rancid stench wafted from the patient's mouth. Most people would have smelled rotting meat. Tom smelled debridement, irrigation, drainage, root canals, and extractions. In a word, he smelled money. His examination didn't turn up a single cavity. These teeth were healthy and strong, almost as if they were brand new. Where was that smell coming from? Pericoronitis? He worked his way back to the molars to check for partially erupted wisdom teeth. He relished the challenge of extracting an impacted tooth with twisting, snarled roots. A rising tide of saliva drowned the back teeth and lapped at his fingers. The hissing vacuum pump erupted into loud, hungry slurps. He snuck a look at the patient's eyes. They were wide and unblinking, shining beneath the glare of the overhead light. Tom couldn't help but think of a crocodile, jaws poised and waiting. He had never hesitated to stick his fingers inside someone's mouth, and for the first time in his life, the sight of his fleshy fingers between sharp white teeth unnerved him. He no longer saw the teeth as intriguing problems or credit card payments, but as weapons for grinding and tearing. A thick sweat began to soak his spearmint green smock. His meticulously trained fingers squirmed against the tight latex gloves. He had invested so much in his fingers, training them to feel the tiniest speck of decay with the number 23 hook, learning how to apply exactly 10 grams of pressure to the perio probe. All the years of solitary study, all the snide comments and ridicule from people who thought his vocation was a joke. He had graduated from dental school with no friends and a chasm of debt. 
The cheapest x-ray system he could find was $4,000. The dental chair alone was another five. He had taken out more loans to stay afloat, and now he was maxed out. He was starving for money. He reluctantly put his fingers back between the teeth. He prodded the lingual mandibular and saw a glint of virgin enamel beneath the tongue. Hyperdontia. Supernumerary teeth were rare, and they always needed to be pulled or surgically removed. These weren't the malformed peg one, pegs one would expect. However, they were perfect and sharp, like baby teeth. Tom tugged the opeculum, covering the extra sharp teeth, and dropped his pen. There was another whole row folded underneath the surface. Tom's fingers fluttered around, unsure what to do next. He couldn't believe his luck. His patient wasn't just going into oral surgery. He was going into the medical journals. Tom was going to be famous. Let's see the ADA pass him over for a golden apple now. Something fluttered between the back teeth in a rancid breeze. It was thin and bloodstained. Tom grabbed it with a hook and uncoiled it like a snakeskin. Was it a sausage casing? It was extremely elastic and wedged between molars 47 and 48. He reached in with both hands to get a better angle. A sudden stillness made him realize that the patient was holding his breath. He snuck a glance at the man's eyes. The round black eyes were eclipsed with thick eyelids. Was he asleep? He returned his attention to the object and it jumped into focus. It was a torn and bloody finger from a latex glove. Panic filled his veins like Novocaine. He almost didn't feel the snap of tooth on bone. I'm not going to lie. I'm terrified of the dentist. Sorry I stuttered a little bit over the words for that one. I don't know a lot of dental wording. <laughs> Hopefully I still did okay. Um, oh, I'm terrified of the dentist. I absolutely can. Mm -mm. No, thank you. Yeah. All right. So that was Tooth and Bone by Jeff C. Carter. Um, thank you both so much for um, submitting your stories and, and trusting me to read them. Um, it means a lot to me that people trust me with things that they obviously put, you know, their heart and soul into. I know um, writers, I mean, you know, their stories mean a lot to them. So I appreciate you guys uh, opening up and letting me share them. Uh, once again, their information and the links to the books that you can find these stories will be um, in the description for the episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm going to try to get back into a routine of doing these. Um, next Saturday, we will be back with Horror Bestie Breakdown with Antlers. Um, Tasha and I are going to be breaking down and talking about the movie Antlers, which has been um, a source of some disdain for some horror lovers. So I'm, I'm curious to jump in and check it out now that it's on, uh, I think it's HBO Max. Um, and then the Saturday after that, we'll be back to doing some spooky Saturday stories. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this one. Uh, check out these authors. These were these were a lot of fun to read. Very well written. Um, I like them all. I, uh, I uh, you know, good stuff. Always like finding new writers anyway. And opening up, you know, to this kind of thing, it definitely gives you an opportunity to interact with more and find more stuff to read. So super excited about that. So you guys enjoy the rest of your weekend. And, uh, oh, before I forget, um, this coming up Tuesday, my I said this um on a previous thing that I recorded, I think I, um, this next week episode on the 15th is, um, for my YouTube channel is an unboxing for this really cool company called Rotten Rentals. Um, and that doesn't really translate very well into a podcast episode. So for the podcast, there will be uh, kind of like, I guess like a bonus episode, um, or I'm talking with Luther Cross again, and we're doing, um, a three movie wrap up and the movies we'll be talking about are, um, Hell House, LLC, Gone Jam Haunted Asylum and The Deep House. Um, 
which if you don't know how I feel about the Deep House, you should go watch my 10 favorites of 2021 on my YouTube channel. So anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. I will, uh, you'll hear from me soon. I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend and have a great week coming up.